0: Welcome to the Life Over Coffee podcast, conversations for transformation. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for joining me. My name is Rick Thomas, and you can always find me in my coffee shop at lifeovercoffee.com. Our mission statement is we exist to bring hope and help to you and others by creating resources that spark conversation for transformation. And I trust that what I'm about to present to you will be an impetus to spark many conversations with your friends, hoping that it will lead to transformation. This is a webinar presentation, and the title of it is A Biblical Perspective on Disorders the sufficiency of God's Word. We have attention in our culture today. There are two competing authorities. One of those authorities is the DSM, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, and then the other one is the Bible. Those are the two authorities that people go to when they're having internal soul noise, when they're having problems that they are working through. And I hope that as you listen to this webinar or watch the slide presentation, that you will grow and mature in a healthy biblical perspective on disorders, that this will be persuasive uh, to uh, give you a sufficiency of God's word worldview. The big idea here is that personal problems are real. Whether we're talking about fear or impulsiveness, hopelessness or anger, and there's many other categories that you can add, but here are four primary ones that I will deal with throughout this webinar. The one thing that I want you, I want to ensure that you do not hear me saying at all is that your problems are not real or that your problems do not exist. They do exist. If you're struggling, you are struggling. And so I am not going to challenge you at that point That is not the issue that I have in mind here. The big idea in the most succinct way of saying it is that there are two perspectives vying for authority over how to fix our problems. That is my primary point, and that is what I will be talking about exclusively The culture calls it disorders. The Bible has a better response. Now, for those of you who have a sufficiency of Scripture worldview, I trust that these will be wonderful and encouraging reminders to things that you already know. For those of you who need uh, to be shored up on a sufficiency of Scripture worldview, uh, I hope that this will do exactly that that perhaps there will be some people that are watching this that they're unsure. Maybe they are cynical, perhaps due to experiences that they have had through uh, inefficient or unhelpful uh, advice or counseling that they've had in the past, a mishandling of God's Word. And, of course, I realize that this webinar could be viewed by those who just reject God and reject His Word. And I trust that you will give me a good-faith listen to what I have to present here, and then perhaps uh, this will be persuasive to move you into the direction to biblical psychology rather than uh, what we are hearing and receiving from in our culture. There are two perspectives vying for authority over how to fix our problems. The key verse that I'll be using here is from 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. This is a partial reading of the entire verse. Peter said his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Now, before I get into breaking down disorders and presenting a biblical worldview, it is important that we understand what presuppositional truth is, because presuppositional truth, that is the lens through how we will view whatever it is that we are interpreting There are no neutral facts. There was a scholar many years ago named Cornelius Van Til, and he is the one that said there are no neutral facts or there are no brute facts. Two people can look at the exact same thing, but because we all have an interpretive filter through which we see everything, we're going to come to different conclusions because our filter is different. And so your presupposition is your starting point. Before you have a thought before you think of anything. You have a lens that will color how you think about the things you think about. Perhaps you could think about a presupposition as two people that are wearing glasses. One person has on blue-colored glasses, and the other has on rose-colored glasses. Again, they can look at the same thing, but they're going to see it differently. By the way, for those of you who have relational conflict, this might be a helpful uh, tip here. Uh, If you're in conflict with someone and uh, the individual sees it one way and the other sees it another way, it doesn't mean that they're they're necessarily wrong, not according to their presupposition. Now, there is a biblical way of looking at whatever the disagreement is about, but before we get to there, to that point, to that place, we want to at least acknowledge that maybe this person really sees it that way because... That is how their presupposition or their lens is shaped, and so it is important that nobody is objective. Everybody is an interpreter of what they're thinking about, what they are looking at, what they are experiencing, and again, this is what Cornelius Van Til was teaching us with presuppositional truth. Let me illustrate it this way with the apple. And so we have two people standing in an orchard. Both of them are looking at an apple. In, for simplicity's sake, I will say that one of them is a Christian and the other person is a non-Christian, and so those are two different lenses. Now, what I want to do is just to stack up some a word cloud here in two columns. They're not necessarily uh, contiguous or consistent with each other, but it's just different words to show uh, the conflict and the tension that can come between two people when they're looking through two different lenses. For example, in my view, the Christian worldview will begin with truth. That is a sufficiency of Scripture perspective. The non-Christian Does it have a Bible lens? Therefore, I would say that when they look at their their apple, their lens will be discolored, meaning there will be elements of untruth and outright lies as they look at the world and try to interpret the world according to that presupposition of a non-Christian worldview. The Christian, of course, the synonym is they are a believer and the non-Christian is a non-believer. The Christian, for example, would be a creationist, and of course that is going to give a certain kind of interpretation as they look at that apple, and of course the non-Christian would be beholding to evolutionistic theory, and that will give them another perspective. Christians also would uh, believe in discipleship and disciple making as a mentor takes God's word in hand, illuminated by the Spirit of God, and begins to teach uh, someone about the Bible, about how they can grow and mature in godliness. Of course, the non-Christian would not believe in disciple-making at all. If they are looking for help and transformation or change, uh, they would be seeking out a secular psychologist. The Christian would be God-centered, and the non-Christian would be person-centered. You'll hear that in their language of self-esteem, for example. They believe in esteeming themselves. A God-centered person would be beholding to what Jesus taught us in Matthew 22, verses 36 through 40, that we are to love God and love others Most of all, and all of the laws in the Old Testament are summed up in those four words, love God and love others. And so we would be God-centered. Our view would not be so much focusing on ourselves and esteeming ourselves. Uh, We would follow Paul's logic in Philippians 2, where he said, esteem others more, count others more significant than ourselves. The Christian worldview would give us a redeemer, and of course, a non-Christian worldview would provide self-help at best. We can experience true transformation. We can actually change. At best, a non-Christian worldview can only lead to relief, turning over new leaves, making New Year's resolutions, but it is not long-term sustainable transformation. Now, as you look at these two word lists, again, they're not contiguous as one flows out of the other, uh, but it does show the tension and the the antithesis between a Christian worldview and a non-Christian worldview, and it is important that we understand that there are no neutral facts. And so two people are standing in the orchard, they're looking at that apple, and one might Give glory to God, the Christian would, because of their worldview. And then the other one could give glory to self because of their worldview. Now, you have to determine what is going to be your lens. When it comes to psychology, are we talking about a non-Christian worldview? Then you will be beholding to the DSM, their nomenclature, their acronyms such as ADHD, PTSD, OCD, and other such ways of identifying our legitimate real problems. If you have a sufficiency of Scripture worldview, again, that's going to give you a different kinds, kind of lens, and that's why it's so important that you understand presuppositional truth. Now, over the next few moments, I want to show you various slides to present a biblical perspective on disorders. Now, I heard this presentation many, many years ago from Garrett Higby. I asked him at that time if I could use his presentation and adapt it for my purposes. And so I have changed it a little bit, but the concept that I will be communicating to you over these next few slides did come from Garrett Higby and I appreciate his good work in laying down uh, these wonderful truths so that we can understand uh, what our uh, problems and how to find help through the Bible. And so I want to begin by uh, talking about the interconnected Sin cycle. And I will do that by laying out these four quadrants. And I'm going to come from a DSM perspective. The DSM, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual in 1952, there was the DSM 1, and there have been different iterations up to uh, 2020, I believe. Uh, There was the DSM 5TR, which was the text revision in 2013. They had the DSM. 5, but they have revised it, and you will find that the different DSMs through uh, the chronology of its life, there have been DSM 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and there, there have also been uh, multiple TR text revisions of uh, one of those, uh, whether it's the 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. Right now we have the DSM 5 TR, and so I will be using that language uh, to show the interconnected SIN cycle. If you're coming from a DSM presupposition, a lens, in my view, you're gonna have the wrong perspective. And our starting point will determine our ending point. And so if we're thinking about our problems wrongly, well, we have the wrong perspective, rather, then that's going to influence our thinking. The lens that we're looking through will create our thinking. And if we have an improper lens, we're going to have improper thinking. Now, our emotions and our feelings come from our thoughts. And so You know, we don't have emotional problems per se. Emotions actually identify what our thinking is. You cannot have emotions without thinking, and thinking is the causation of our feelings. And so if you have a wrong perspective about something that's happening in your world, something that's happening to you, if you have a wrong lens, well, that's going to create different kinds of thought processes. And then, of course, out of those thought processes will be emotional responses that are consistent with whatever those thoughts may be. And then those emotions are going to lead to wrong behaviors. And of course, there is an interconnectedness to this Wrong behaviors will only affirm or further ensconce or embed a person into a wrong perspective. And what you will have in many people's lives is this cyclic behavior. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul talked about strongholds. A synonym for a stronghold is a thought fortress. It is a thought argument that rises up in our minds and it takes our minds captive The reason our minds are taken captive is because we're not looking at or responding to our problems correctly. We have a wrong perspective. And it's like an endless loop tape. And once we get on that merry-go-round or get on that endless loop tape, it's going to impact our thinking wrongly. It's going to create emotions that are consistent with our thought processes. And of course, it's going to lead to behavior and we can't get off of it. And again, this is what Paul was talking about when he said that we have these strongholds that take us captive. Therefore, the solution, which I'll talk about later, is to submit those things to the authority of God, of Christ, to the obedience of Christ, and then we can break these strongholds. And it will begin by changing our perspectives. But in this slide, we see the interconnectedness of a sin cycle. Now, I'm going to take the same uh, quadrants, and I'm going to add some labels here, and I'll begin. I'll work through these labels throughout the rest of this uh, presentation. And so, up in the right upper right-hand corner, you have impulsive. Now. I have given you several DSM categories uh, that would uh, fall in line with what we would call impulsive. Now, this is not an exhaustive list. You will recognize many of them, I'm sure, and of course, you could add others to the list. For example, as you see on the screen, there's ADD, there's ADHD, there are eating disorders, there's obsessive-compulsive, OCD. Uh, And then there is intermittent explosive. All of these will fit under the category or this quadrant of impulsive. All right, here's another one. In the bottom right hand of the screen, you see anxious. Now, under anxious, what you'll find is panic, acute stress, PTSD, substance-induced anxiety, psychotic disorders, and of course, you can add to this list as well. In the bottom left-hand screen, you see depressive. The depressive DSM categories are major depressive, bipolar, mental illness, mood disorder, and of course, you can add others too. And then in the upper left, we have disruptive. Disruptive, we have conduct disorder, oppositional defiant pyromania and kleptomania, pyromania is setting fires, kleptomania is stealing and so these are four different behavioral or mood disorders, and this comes right out of the DSM. And I'm separating these out a little bit later. I will give you biblical nomenclature and give you biblical solutions to these. But first of all, I, I did want you to see uh, some of the ways that the DSM describes the things that are happening to us. All right, so let's take these behavioral mood move- mood disorders, impulsive. And I want to relabel them uh, to give you a biblical category for each one of them. Now, the reason that I'm doing this, I think, is self-evident, because what we want to do as biblicists, again, we're not saying that the problem that the person is struggling with is unreal. And so let's say that someone comes to you and they, they say that I am struggling with ADHD. Well, the first category, or the way that we would recategorize that, we say, okay, well, that will fit within the impulsive quadrant. Now, we want to continue to move that language over into a, a biblical way, a biblical presupposition, and so, therefore, the Bible would talk about impulsiveness as folly. Now, remember, we have two competing authorities, and so the problem is real, and but how we label the problem, that will determine our starting point. And how we start with working toward a solution, well, the solution will be determined by how we begin. And that's why it's important when someone comes and they say that I have these types of issues, you can put it in one of these four quadrants here, for example, and now we're working with, let's say, ADHD, we put it in the impulsive quadrant, and now we have to move it over to Scripture so that we can see it with the clarity of God's Word, and so we are relabeling it as folly. All right, so let's take anxiousness in the bottom right-hand corner. I want to move all of those DSM labels that we saw in the previous slide. I'm calling them anxious Uh, but I'm going to move them deeper into God's Word. And so the better label for what we're talking about here is fear. Let's take depressive. The better label is despair. Of course, this will take you right to the Psalms, and there's so much talk about despair throughout God's Word, particularly in uh, the Psalms. By the way, it's impulsive, uh, as I have relabeled folly, uh, that will take you right into the Proverbs. And there is is so much help that a person will find in the Proverbs uh, if they're struggling with impulsive or a behavior that is folly. Disruptive, what we're talking about here is rebellion. I trust that when you look at this screen uh, that you see that There's so much more clarity when we label things according to God's Word. It actually gives you a clearer pathway that you can walk down. And here's the important thing as we're talking about these competing authorities that are vying uh, for us to submit to. If you take the DSM nomenclature and their labels, well, we already know the path that that is gonna take you down. The problem is real, they label it with some DSM type label, and ultimately that that leads to medication. And of course, that is a life sentence because what they're saying is, is that we cannot change what is wrong with you, but we can give you relief, which is part what you saw in the word stacking in the presuppositional slide earlier. That's why it's so important that we have a right lens through which we are looking at very real problems because if, if it's a DSM lens, then you are heading toward behavioral modification through medication, and that's a life sentence that you really don't want to recommend to anyone. You can take the same problem, run it through a biblical lens, come to better identification of what it is, and through that identification, you can start working through what is happening inside of them. For example, let me uh, illustrate that. I'm going to take the DSM, And then I want to begin to move it from left to right, as you see on the screen. I will talk about the bent of the person, and then we will move it into the Bible. This is the sliding that you want to do as you take a DSM label, a real problem with an individual, and you move it into a biblical worldview. And so I want to take all four of those problems that I presented earlier. Impulsiveness. Uh, the bent that we're talking about, as I said earlier, is folly, and then as you move it deeper into the Bible, now we're talking about foolish behavior. Now, some people would see that as being disparaging, and that is not what I mean at all. It's not a condescending label. It's not a self-righteous label, as you or I, that we're looking down on someone and No, it's just an accurate label. The thing about the Bible is that the Bible is not a flattering book, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so we should not see these labels as though it's damaging our self-esteem. And of course, that is the problem, is because we can have such a high view of ourselves through ever-increasing self-estimation of ourselves that when we read labels like this, it's, it's hard to take. But what we should see in these labels is hope and help. When we can accurately describe what is wrong with us, only a proud person would be discouraged about what they are hearing. The humble person will be grateful because they're moving ever so closely to a solution. And so as we move from the DSM to the Bible, we see impulsive, folly, and foolish. Now let's take anxious. The bent for the anxious person is worry, and worry is getting us closer uh, to identifying what is really going on in the person. And then as we situate ourselves in the Bible, what we're going to find is fear. It's like the word depressive and the bent of the person How you would characterize them would be despair, and then as we move it in the Bible, what we're actually talking about is hopelessness, and I trust that you see uh, the confidence that we can have in God's Word with the accuracy in how it uh, describes and labels what is wrong with us. Disruptive was the fourth category, and of course the bent here we were talking about as rebellion, and then of course the Bible would call that anger. And the Bible has a lot to say about anger. So I trust that this slide here helps you to see the essentialness of moving from left to right from a a DSM label to uh, the characterization of this person or the bent of this person to what the Bible would say is actually going on. And then from uh, the Bible nomenclature, we would be able to work out a solution. As Paul would talk to us, Uh, in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22, that we want to put off our former manner of life. And so we have a manner of life that is foolishness, or uh, we are fear-centered, or we're experiencing hopelessness or patterns of anger in our life. We want to put that off. And then he says in verse number 23 that we want to renew the spirit of our minds. And then, of course, we want to put on true righteousness and true holiness, which could be summed up with one word Christ' likeness a biblical perspective on disorders now I want to take these four uh, labels impulsive anxiousness, depressive and disruptive and I want to talk about the heart issues as we get inside the heart. We talked about the impulsive person being foolish, the anxious anxious person being fearful the hope uh, the depressive person being hopeless and the disruptive person person struggling with anger. We have clearer categories to examine what is going on in the heart of this individual. And again, I've seen this so often in counseling that when you can clearly identify uh, what's happening to someone with biblical labels, and, and I'm talking about Christians, of course, the Spirit of God just illuminates them, and they begin to see with a clarity that they did not see before. And with that clarity, hope begins to build inside of them. But also want you to see that there is an interconnectedness in these four quadrants. You see, sin is never so neat, and sin is never so tidy that it's going to play well uh, to get that it will play well together. And so when a person is struggling with impulsiveness, or what I'm calling foolish behavior, let me illustrate. Let's say that someone does something foolish, and then they... They come to their senses, much like uh, the prodigal son when they face plant in the hog lot, and they can't believe that they did that impulsive or that foolish thing. There's an interconnectedness here. Uh, They can start being fearful as they look at their behavior. Let's say that a parent has been parenting uh, in an ungodly way, and they come to their senses, and they recognize that, oh, what I did to my child just now was foolish. Maybe a spouse will do that to their spouse in in a moment of, of insanity not having the mind of Christ, they do something foolish to their spouse, and then sanity comes in as they move back into a Christ-like way of thinking. If they're not careful, they can be very fearful as they look in the rearview mirror at what they did, and now on top of the foolish behavior, they're acting fearful. And if they're not careful, if that fear begins to develop a stronghold in their mind, a fault argument that rises up against the knowledge of God, it can lead to hopelessness. And what you will find many times with a hopeless person uh, is that they can just respond in anger. And if they're not careful out of that anger, uh, will become more foolish behavior. And so what I want you to see in this slide here, the person can be struggling with foolishness, but if they're not careful in guarding their hearts well, it can lead into fear, hopelessness, anger, this frustration, and of course, It creates a cycle of more foolishness, and they don't get out of these interconnected heart issues. Let's say that a gentleman is struggling at work. Maybe he got fired. He got let go from his job and he goes to the bar rather than going to the Bible, and he starts drinking uh, as a solution to his problem, well, that would be foolish behavior. Getting drunk uh, when uh, a challenge, when heat is coming to your life, is foolish behavior. And then uh, that uh, in a drunken state, he begins to think about uh, what is going on with his family or what may happen with his family, his inability to provide and and where he's going to get another job, and now uh, a fear kicks in, and he becomes fearful as the reality of what is happening to him with the losing of his job uh, settles in and he begins to feel hopeless about his new condition as unemployed, and then he becomes frustrated, and so he continues to drink. And that is the interconnectedness here. And you can think about many of your your issues using this, what you see here on the screen. And as you are discipling someone As you're helping your spouse, as you're helping a friend, as you are parenting a child, uh, it's important that we understand that you can jump in on any one of these quadrants. uh, A angry child, let's say that we start in the angry quadrant in the upper left-hand corner, and a child responds in anger. Well, that's going to lead to foolish behavior, and then out of that foolish behavior, they recognize what they did, and now they are afraid, and that fear can lead to hopelessness again, which can lead to anger, the interconnectedness of heart issues. And so when you are talking to someone and trying to help them to walk through their problems, it is important to understand that each person is different. There's a verse here that really helps me to uh, keep me in check when I'm thinking about people. It's first the first Thessalonians five fourteen. Paul gives us three genres or three demographics of individuals. These three demos, you see, in first Thessalonians five fourteen, we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. And then he ties a bow around all three of those demos and says, be patient with them all. But what you see embedded in this text are three different types of people that you give three different types of responses to. And so he says, admonish the idol. Admonish means to warn the idol, to rebuke them, to confront them, to bring corrective care to them because they are sinning. They are idle. That is a sin issue. But then you have another type of person, the faint-hearted Uh, It could be the feeble-minded in some versions. Uh, In the actual Greek, it it is the small-souled person. They have a a smallish capacity. Uh, They have a diminished capacity for whatever reason that may be. And when you have a small-souled or a faint-hearted individual, you don't want to admonish them. You want to encourage them. And then you have the weak person that needs your help. And the beauty of this passage is is that we need God's insight. When we see a person that's acting foolishly, let's say, or angry, as we saw in the previous slide, we want to make sure that we are discerning them properly so that we bring the right kind of care to them. We don't want to admonish the faint-hearted. We don't want, uh, well, I'd say don't want to encourage the weak. Of course, you would encourage the weak, but the primary thing is to help the weak. The big idea here is that we want to discern our audience. We want to read the room. We want to know what is going on with the person that we are trying to help because uh, two people can be having similar problems, uh, but yet our care to them would be different because everybody is different. Of course, ultimately, we want to make sure that we are patient with all of them. And this is speaking to Galatians 6.1, where Paul says that if a person is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, meaning Christians, because only Christians have an alive, quickened spirit. And so you Christians who have the spirit, there's a redundancy there. You restore them in a spirit of gentleness keeping watch on yourselves so that you too do not sin and so we want to be discerning when we're helping people we want to try to understand what is going on inside of them now i have a slide here that i trust it will be helpful as you think about a fuller understanding of the soul and the body and the behaviors now In these three spheres, for those of you who are listening to the audio version, uh, I would encourage you to watch this webinar as you can, because what you'll see here on the screen are three different categories. There is a soul category, there is a body and soul category, and then, of course, there are behaviors. Now, again, in all three spheres, this is not an exhaustive list. You see 10 to 15 words in each one of these spheres, the point here is just to give you an idea uh, of the discernment that we need that when we're helping people. Uh, and so in the soul, we have integrity, affection, morality, self-control. You see a lot of the fruit of the Spirit here, goodness, gentleness, patience motivations of the heart. And so a person who is, is, is sinning uh, the, in, in anger, uh, we want to get inside of them and see what is going on in their heart. And then under body and soul, we have intellect, their IQ, their education, their cognitive ability, understanding, their physicality, their sturdiness, and so forth. And then behaviors, we have another list here. This is the beauty of God's Word, God's Word gives us just comprehensive insight into what is going on with someone. It's not a simplistic simplistic way of thinking about people's problems by looking at the behavior, attaching a label to them like ADHD, and then sending them to the psychiatrist, that pathway where they will get medication to modify the behavior but there's no internal heart transformation. And what I trust that you see on this screen here is a more comprehensive view of psychology. God's Word is the greatest psychology book that has ever been written, and it not only can change us behaviorally, as Jesus would say in Matthew 5, if your hand offends you, cut it off. If your eye offends you, pluck it out. Now, he's using hyperbolic language there, which I'm sure that you understand, but the point here is that behavioral modification is essential, but behavioral modification is not enough, as Paul would say in Romans 8, 13, that we must mortify the deeds of the flesh, that we must to take the vitality out of what is going on inside of us. I used the illustration of the common cold to make this point. There are two things that we can do with the common cold. We can behaviorally modify. Uh, We can eat right, drink right, sleep right, wipe our noses, and so forth. But we know that it's going to take seven to ten days to get over the common cold because it's more than just behavioral modification, behavioral action steps that we should take. It's more than that. It's more than amputation, as Jesus would say in Matthew 5. It is also mortification. It's an internal issue, and so we have to take it out at its roots because that cold that we are seeing behaviorally is caused internally by something that—by a Z, something happening inside of them. And so that analogy gives us a good way of thinking about our spiritual problems, our psychological issues. And so we want to do more than just medicate the problems so that they are modified, so that they're not behaving a certain way any longer. But we want to take it out at its root. It's kind of like a stain under white paint. You can paint over it, but the problem still exists, and the good news is that biblical psychology goes much deeper than the surface of the problem, and I trust you can see that as you look at this screen. All right, so let's talk about the long-term consequences if we continue in these behaviors. We're looking at our four quadrants again. We have impulsive in the upper right, anxiousness in the lower right, depressive, the lower left, and disruptive in the upper left. And so we have a person with impulsive behavior. If they continue in that behavior, we're talking about a pattern now. This is different from an episode. If they stay in that behavior, ultimately the long-term consequences, there could be multiple, okay? As you look at the screen This is a simplistic uh, walkthrough of these problems, and and many of these uh, words here that you see throughout this webinar, you can add more. As I said earlier, it's not an exhaustive list, and so I don't want you to see this as formulaic. Uh, I would not want anybody to use this as, well, it's impulsive, and so they are blame-shifting. They could be doing other things as well. But I just want to give you an idea of what can happen for a person who stays embedded in impulsive behavior, because what will be happening to them is their conscience will be accusing them, as we read in Romans chapter 2, where our consciences can excuse or accuse us, and a person who does impulsive behavior, and they're not going to change— well, they have to respond to it. Obviously, repentance would be the best response. But if a person is not going to respond and going to stay embedded in impulsive behavior, well, the response is not repentance. And so they have to explain. They have to react to it. And so typically what you will find is that they will blame shift. Let's say that you have an angry spouse. And they have a pattern of anger in their lives. And rather than repenting of it, they're not going to continue to accuse themselves. Uh, that would be detrimental to them. I can't, I can't keep taking the hit for this. Therefore, I need to put this on someone else. And so I'm not going to change. And so what I will do to satiate or to soothe my soul I'll just blame this on other people. And now the long-term consequences of impulsive behavior will be blame-shifting. And once they get into that type of pattern, it's really hard for them to change because now the stronghold at this point has fully captivated them. The long-term consequences of an anxious person uh, could be false guilt or shame. False guilt is not legit guilt from God. Perhaps a better word for guilt would be conviction, where they they feel this sense that they have done something wrong. That's where shame uh, can be a better word here. Uh, Some people uh, declare themselves guilty of something that they're not really guilty of. This is what happens with a person that's in a pattern of anxiousness. Uh, there's a form of paranoia here, a, uh, a, a kind of thinking that is outside of, of sanity, and they, they can be, begin accusing themselves and, and conjuring up. Uh, reasons for why they're this way or feeling this sense of paranoia or guilt or shame. Shame is an internal awkwardness that we can sense in our own souls. And if we stay in an anxious state, uh, we will begin to feel feel that internal awkward awkwardness, and it will only create more and more isolation to where we begin to hide from people uh, because we don't want people to know what we're really thinking and what is really happening in our minds. And so there is a solution for anxiousness, but isolating due to shame is not that solution. It, it is not the answer. It, it will only make things worse. Long-term consequences for a person who is depressive could be a victim, a victim mentality. It is a woe is me, a self-pitying mindset. Regret comes to mind as they stay in this condition, and after a while, what we're talking about Actually, in, in all of these, uh, it becomes an identity that we take on. The impulsive person just becomes the blame shifter, never owning, never taking responsibility for what they do. The anxious person is just embroiled in, in shame, and they, they sense that identity as they carry that mantle. The depressive person can continue to spiral uh, down, and they can take on a victim mindset. One of the things that's important to understand here is that our psyche, uh, the word psyche is soul, our souls are not built uh, to carry uh, sinful behavior. Our uh, souls are not built to carry sinful behavior, whether it's ours or someone else's. Sin happens two ways things that we do, things that we do to ourselves, things that we do to others, and of course, things that have done. That have happened to us. For example, go back to uh, anxiousness as an illustration. Let's suppose that uh, a child has an impulsive, angry, or disruptive father. And because of that, uh, it creates this anxiousness in the child's soul. And of course, they feel guilt, a false guilt that has been placed on them by an angry father. And they begin to believe a lie. Uh, The father communicates a lie, and the child is gaslit, and they take on the lie. There is an exchange of the truth of God for a lie. The truth of God would say that you are made in the image of God, uh, that there, you, you are important. You're an important person. You're a blessed person. You're made in the image of God. Uh, you're not a person that we should curse or uh, look down on or treat as though you're some kind of in, inferior creation. You're made in the Uh, Creation or the image of God. But sometimes in this illustration, a child can hear this false narrative that is communicated to them uh, that you're an awful child and why can't you ever get it together and why can't you ever do anything right? And it creates this anxiousness in their soul and it, it leads to a false sense of guilt because now they have been gaslit and they're believing truths that aren't true at all, and then they feel this high sense of shame. They are not built to carry that. We are not built to carry sin, uh, the sin of others or the sin that we commit. That's why we have a Redeemer. That is why Christ came. He takes all of our sin, and he it is placed on Him. Past, present, and future sin is placed on Him, because our psyches cannot carry sin. And so when it happens episodically, the first thing that we should do is that we should repent and get rid of our sin, that it flees from us. And then when someone is sinning against us, what we want to do is have an attitude of forgiveness toward them. We want to see what they're doing to us with clarity, and we want to pray for them. But we reject uh, any false narrative, any untruths. They may be exchanging the truth of God for a lie, but we're not going to adopt that because it will adapt our souls every time we adopt someone that's trying to communicate something that's not true, and then we will become the anxious or the depressive person. We will begin to feel the internal awkwardness, the shame in our souls. We will begin to take on a victim mindset. And so whether it's our sin or the sin of someone else's, we have to get it off of us, out of our psyches, out of our souls as quick as possible, because there are long-term consequences. The disruptive person, well, eventually they will just become a hateful individual. Now, we see that in our culture all the time, and it's very sad to see the disruptiveness, the patterns of disruptiveness uh, in our culture. And of course, as you as that continues on, uh, in their souls, uh, they just become hateful people. Now, the Bible has a solution uh, for these things, uh, and this is what I want you to be persuaded of, not just the comprehensive nature of understanding our problems, but the pathway out of our problems. The Bible will identify what is going on with us, and then, of course, the Bible will help us to change. And so for the impulsive person, uh, the solution is self-control. Now, remember again, This is not formulaic, and it's not cliche-y, and it's not a bumper sticker. Uh, We have to really work with people to help them to move from impulsive to self-control. It's not as simplistic as what you see on the screen. Again, this is a teaching moment, but this is not how counseling happens at all. And so it can take weeks and months for a person to transition from impulsiveness to self-control. This webinar is about the two authorities in our lives, and so that's why I am just working with labels but not the process. We have many other webinars on our website. For example, the doctrine of repentance. Now that is a slow roll where we work through the incremental process of repentance, going from impulsiveness to self-control. So again, as you look at this particular presentation, please understand what it is about. It is a biblical perspective on disorders, and that's why we're just hanging out with the labels, with the nomenclature, But going from impulsive to self-control could take a long time as you carefully work with a person building the relational bridge so that you can communicate more challenging and complex truths to them to help them to get untangled from what uh, they are bound up in. Uh, The Bible's answer for anxiousness is trust now. As we talk about trust, it is important that uh, we identify why a person will not uh, trust God. Uh, I call this our faith killers because, again, we don't want to bumper bumper sticker people and say, well, you know, uh, you're anxious and you just need to trust God. Uh, That's unfortunate counsel, and that has probably happened more times than I care to think about, and we can do better than that. Uh, We can get inside a person's psyche, inside their soul, and understand why uh, they're not trusting God in this moment, what is going on uh, in their minds. Now, the reason we can do that is because, well, they're no different than we are. We're all cut from the same Adamic cloth. Uh, We all struggle similarly at the level of the heart, though our lifestyles above ground can be different there are billions of people in the world, and we're all unique above the surface. But as you work down into a person's heart, you find a similarity, because we all came from one man. His name is Adam, uh, one man and one woman, Adam and Eve. And so as you help a person to learn to trust God, you want to begin to identify why they are not trusting God, which creates the anxiousness in their souls. And as you identify and help people, them to remove their faith killers, uh, then they will be able to grow in trust of God. So I want to walk through the three faith killers, uh, the three things that will keep us from trusting God. Number one, anger. You cannot trust God if you are angry with him. Let me illustrate. Uh, There was a time, it was a dark and stormy night, when Peter was on a boat and Jesus came walking on water. And of course, Jesus asked Peter to get out of that boat and to walk on water with him. He wanted him to trust God. Well, let's say that Peter was angry with Jesus. Anger negates faith. You cannot be angry at God and trust God at the same time. Now it's important to understand that when I'm using the word anger that it is a word with many manifestations. For example, a person who has long-term disappointment with God or long-term disappointment in their life, a pattern of disappointment that has gone on for let's say years. What we're talking about here is angry. The person is angry. There are a lot of Christians, I believe, that have this low-grade disappointment that runs under the surface of their lives. They do not have the life that they wish, things that have happened to them that they can't work through, and they just live in a disappointed way that nobody really perceives because it's this low-level anger that I call disappointment. The person has a pattern of disappointment in their lives. They're making a commentary about God because God is the author of our stories, and so we are disappointed with how our story is playing out for us, meaning we are angry at God. You can't trust God and have long uh, long patterns of disappointment toward him or anger. You cannot trust God. Peter would not get out of that boat if he was afraid of him. And of course, I think there is a low-level fear in our lives of God as well, Uh, Because we know that God is not safe, as uh, we read in the Chronicles of Narnia, the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, but he is good. And sometimes we put the accent mark on the fact that God is not safe. As we read all these stories in the Bible, even the one that I'm illustrating, hey, Peter, I want you to walk on the water, that is not safe. And of course, as God calls us to do things in our lives, fear can rise up and can control us, which will negate trust. And then the third one is ignorance. You cannot trust God if you do not know him. And I am not using ignorance. Ignorance in a pejorative way, uh, just meaning that we do not have all the awareness that we need. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. And so there are pockets of ignorance in all of our lives when it comes to knowing, understanding God. And so these are the three faith killers. And so when you are moving a person from anxiousness to trust, we want to make sure— that we're not doing this simplistically, but we're getting inside of why they're anxious and why they're not trusting God. The Bible's answer for depressive is hope. Now, hope and trust are similar, but in this case, I want to use them differently. Trust is trusting God in the moment, day by day, walking in the Spirit. Hope, in this context, uh, it is a micro- It is a telescope. Uh, as we are we are looking at God afar off. He is the object of our faith. It is this country that we see uh, in another world. As we read in uh, Hebrews 11, they saw a city. Uh, They did not count this world as worthy. Uh, They had hope. And so in this context, for the depressive person, we need to know that there is hope. And so as we look through the telescope, the object of our faith is God, and that gives us hope. It gives us a gravitational pull that pulls us through our depressive state, and that's how I'm using hope in this context. Trust more in the immediate as you identify these faith killers, and then, of course, the disruptive person is obedience. Similar to impulsive, and again, one last time, this is not formulaic. Uh, don't bumper, stick pe- bumper sticker people, but you want to get inside of this these behaviors that we need to put off impulsive, anxious, depressive, disruptive, and the behaviors that we need to put on, self-control, trust, hope, obedience. But read inside of that in Paul's template in Ephesians 4, Verse 23 says, renew the mind, and the renewal of the mind will take some work, and it could take weeks and many months to help them to go from putting off to putting on. Now, as you look at the interconnected sin cycle, you will also see this wrong perspective, wrong thinking, wrong feeling, wrong behavior that I mentioned earlier. Uh, If we have the DSM, that's going to give us that wrong perspective. But there is a sanctification cycle with the Bible. Let's say you have the right perspective. You're looking through the right lens. It's going to lead to right thinking, which is going to lead to right emotions and, of course, right behavior. And then as we continue to do that behavior, well, it creates this cyclic effect, which is exactly what you want. It's going to affirm that you're on the right road, and we're going to grow in faith. We're going to mature in Christ-likeness we begin to have the mind of Christ. As Philippians 2, 5 says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Jesus is sanity. We are all insane. We are outside of sanity. And our hope is that we will begin to move closer and closer into Christ-likeness as we uh, continue to reform or progress into sanity, and this is the direction that we want to go so that we can have that mind of Christ. This is a biblical perspective on disorders. I want to wrap up with a few questions. Do you have a disorder? How do you know? Who affirms it? I would encourage you to watch uh, the other webinar that we have about this that builds on it teaches a foundation and a presupposition how to think about the DSM versus the Bible. As I break down the chronology of the DSM and what it's all about as far as descriptive psychology, I would encourage you to watch that one-hour webinar. But do you have a disorder? How do you know? Who affirms it? What is your presupposition about the disorders? How does it guide you? And again, when I say that you have a disorder, well, I guess we all do. Again, I'm not saying that the problem, the thing that you struggle with is unreal, not saying that at all, but I am saying that the presupposition that you have, it will determine uh, how you look at it, and of course, it will determine the pathway that leads you through it. Number three, will you share what you have learned here with a competent Christian? Would you talk about these things? Will you have a conversation for transformation? Number four, will you choose a disorder? and follow the pathway that I have outlined. So I would encourage you to pick any disorder, whether it's something that you struggle with, someone that you are discipling, or just pick one randomly, and work through this webinar so that you can uh, reclassify what it is and get into a biblical perspective, a biblical pathway, so that you can find a biblical solution for it. Number five, how would you help a person who says they have a disorder? Well, we would be patient with all of them, as we saw in 1 Thessalonians 5.14. We would not look down on them at all. What have we received that has not been given to us? For by grace we have been saved. So there's no condescension, there's no self-righteousness at all. We want to come alongside them. Uh, We want to listen to how they describe themselves. We don't want to take that away from them as saying it's not true or marginalize it as as though it's not true. Uh, We want to clearly hear what they're saying. And then we want to begin to move their language from a DSM nomenclature to a biblical nomenclature. And then from that point forward, we want to process them out. We want to move them down a pathway to a biblical solution. The big idea in this webinar is that personal problems are real, whether fear or impulsiveness, hopelessness or anger. Those are the four that I use to uh, build a sufficiency of Scripture worldview. There are two perspectives vying for authority over how to fix our problems. The culture calls it disorders. The Bible has a better response. Before you leave, there's one more thing here. I would love for you to pray for our ministry uh, ask God to continue to bless and and help our ministry to reach as many people as possible. Uh, we would love for everyone to be doing life over coffee, creating conversations, starting conversations that lead to transformation. Also, would you follow us wherever you find us on social? Uh, just follow us and share our resources with whosoever will. We would love for you to share our content. Uh, virtually all of our content is free, and so we built it for you to not only benefit from it. it Is hope and help for you and others. That is our mission statement. And then for those of you that can support or donate to our ministry, I would love for you to do that. Again, our resources are free, and we can only do this by the generosity uh, of those who come alongside us financially. And so if you're able to support us, would you do that? Perhaps some of you would. uh, This is the season for you to consider becoming a Mastermind student. It's our all-online training program where we teach Christians how to become effective disciple-makers. Some people call it biblical counseling, which is fine, but we want all Christians to grow in their ability to bring God's Word to bear on themselves and also for other people. Our Mastermind program does this. It is all online. You don't have to go anywhere. You can do it right on your computer, and we have an active community Uh, behind the paywall on our forums. Uh, Many of our mastermind students, we have many mastermind students that are working through the program. It is self-paced, and so there's information. Uh, You can put your phone over the QR code that you see on the screen, and it will tell you all about the mastermind program. This is a biblical perspective on disorders, the sufficiency of God's word. Thank you so much for listening. My name is Rick Thomas. You can find me at lifeovercoffee.com. God bless. Thanks for joining us. Learn more and get access to other resources at lifeovercoffee.com.